today, there has to be a renewed effort to help poor white people, poor black people, poor Latinos, working whites, working blacks, working Latinos, that they have more in common when it comes to economic issues than in division with each other. Those of us who were left were attacked by the police with bulldozers and tear gas and they tore into the camp and tore it down and people fled and people were arrested. I am a black immigrant, black mother of non-white kids and the police now they target our kids. They literally target our kids so our kids can get in trouble. Just to see that the system don't work for us, it's killing me inside. So I make this my business to be out here and protest for Black Lives Matter. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And this week is marking so many milestones, one year since Donald Trump took office, one year since hundreds of counter-inaugural protesters were kettled, arrested, and some allegedly abused by D.C. police, one year since the Women's March, which is holding anniversary events around the country on Saturday, January 20th, and the holiday marking the birthday of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is being celebrated during this year that also marks the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Later in the show, we'll hear voices of historians and activists speaking out at the launch of a new major exhibit here titled City of Hope, curated by the National Museum of African American History and Culture and mounted in their gallery inside the National Museum of American History. The exhibit documents King's last work, The Poor People's Campaign in March, which ended here in Washington, D.C., with a multiracial encampment of 3,000 people called Resurrection City on the National Mall. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. Lives and livelihoods are hanging in the balance as lawmakers play a cat-and-mouse game about a possible government shutdown. On Thursday night, the House passed a one-month spending plan that includes funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program but does not include resolution of the immigration status of 800,000 undocumented young people brought to the United States as children who have received protection under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. DACA recipients continue protests on Capitol Hill this week with mass rallies at Senate buildings where the offices of individual lawmakers were occupied, like on Tuesday when dozens sang inside the office of Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. In other government budget news, The Intercept is reporting that the Trump administration 
is doubling down on its neglect of Puerto Rico, to which it has already extended aid only in the form of a loan, rather than as the grants given to other storm-ravaged areas. Now, The Intercept reports that the loan is being canceled because the Trump White House says that Puerto Rico has too much money to even get a loan. Really? The other underreported story out of D.C. this week, the Senate, including 19 Democrats and 41 Republicans, voted to give Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions expanded surveillance authority, including the ability for Sessions and the FBI to have access to the NSA's data for any reason. And finally, today on January 19th, when this show first airs, the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee is meeting to vote on recommendations made by the Unity Reform Commission after their review of the 2016 primary election. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, Democrat of Hawaii, released a statement saying that representatives of Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and DNC leadership agree with a 60% reduction in the amount of those controversial so-called superdelegates, which include corporate lobbyists. The recommendations also include rules to encourage new voters, incentivizing same-day registration for more accessible primaries and caucuses, and financial transparency within the party. Gabbard said that while many progressives wanted a complete elimination of superdelegates, a 60% reduction, she said, is a good step in the right direction. And now we're going to turn to headlines involving the world beyond the U.S. borders. And we're joined for the first time in 2018 by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, first happier 2018. Since we last spoke, of course, the hits just keep on coming from the Trump administration. This week, I was struck by the cognitive dissonance with respect to North Korea and Syria. As you know, as North and South Korea have an historic de-escalation and rapprochement, including marching under a single flag of a united Korean peninsula at the upcoming Winter Olympics. At the same time, Rex Tillerson is heading talks in Vancouver that are calling for more sanctions against North Korea, continued provocations to North Korea. So first, what's your take on that situation? Well, obviously, Mr. Trump has managed the remarkable feat of driving North and South Korea together. The fact that they're not only marching under one flag, but apparently their women's hockey team is going to have a, a joint effort in these upcoming Winter Olympics is quite significant. As we've been saying on On the Ground for some time now, a nightmare scenario is unfolding for Japan in particular. It's a nightmare from Tokyo's point of view because talking about a country, the, a united Korea, possibly, that not only is one of the leading economic powers and not only has a million-strong army armed with nuclear weapons, but also a kind of historical antipathy towards Tokyo based upon the brutal colonialism imposed upon the Korean Peninsula by Japan between 1910 and 1945. I don't think China necessarily would be pleased with the United Korea or the possibility of same, 
uh, nor with the United States of America. So once again, Mr. Trump has managed to do the impossible. The other location for me of cognitive dissonance is Syria. Why is the U.S. still in Syria, basically? You know, uh, the Syrian army, along with Russia, Iran, have ousted ISIS. And yet now the U.S. announced the formation of a 30,000 border force in Syria. And this is another sovereign country, you know, and the U.S. is continuing to build. I'm not sure how many bases there where we were not invited. So and then Tillerson has restarted language about regime change just this week. Well, what I find striking about Syria is that it was not so long ago that many of the pundits were telling us that in order to combat ISIS in Syria, you had to first oust the Assad regime because we were told the Assad regime was not really interested in fighting ISIS. We were told by some pundits that they were actually in league with ISIS. And they Mm. said it so often that if you weren't paying attention, you might have believed them. But now that has been proven to be false, but the pundits have not gone back to correct the record and don't hold your breath waiting for them to do so. The other aspect of this current Syrian crisis that's striking is that Turkey, which is really flexing its muscles all over the world, I might say, has threatened to disrupt the U.S.-backed Kurdish force that is on the Turkish border, and this could further inflame relations between Washington and Ankara. It was not so long ago they were not processing visas for visits by each other's citizens. A close comrade of President Erdogan was just convicted in a federal court in New York of various transgressions and misdeeds. And therefore, the relationship between Turkey and Russia alternatively has been improving, and that is raising concern in Washington. Well, I don't want to leave the Middle East without mentioning Yemen. When I last looked, you know, more than 10,000 civilians killed, millions of people facing famine, starvation, uh, to the point where some people are basically calling it genocide. There's no end game in sight in terms of the U.S.-backed Saudis ending their bombings, which have targeted hospitals and schools and basically committed other war crimes. And the international community is just letting this happen. This is something that we want to put on the front burner in terms of what we talk about on this show. Well, it's not only what you just articulated, it's the fact that it has been constructed as this showdown between Iran and Saudi Arabia with the Iranians supporting the Houthi forces, which are thought to be close to Tehran militarily. They may be close in other senses. And Saudi Arabia supporting their opposition. But when you raise the question of Yemen, you also raise the question of what I just made an allusion to. That is to say the role of Turkey. Because Turkey is not only active across the Red Sea in Somalia, Turkey has just been ceded an island in the Red Sea by Sudan, and at the same time, that has raised tensions with neighboring Egypt, which is hostile to Turkey. Neighboring Egypt is in a conflict with Ethiopia because of a plan by Ethiopia to dam its section of the Nile River, which Egypt feels will jeopardize the lifeblood of its economy, speaking of the Nile River. And so... That whole area of Northeast Africa across the Red Sea into Yemen is seemingly on the cusp of a larger catastrophe than that which it faces as we speak. 
Okay, so I, I know that you have some news out of China. Obviously, the Cold War between China and the United States is escalating. I would point listeners to the article by Evan Osinos in the New Yorker recent issue. I think it was titled uh, Making China Great Again. It's a critique of Trump's policy towards China. Uh, he starts off by talking about this Chinese movie, Wolf Warrior Two, which if it's playing in your local cineplex, I would recommend seeing it because it's propaganda, quote unquote, in the most real sense. Although if you understand why this is Chinese propaganda, the movies made in China, you may get a better understanding of why so many U.S. movies are propaganda. But in any case, what I find remarkable also is the fact that a Chinese American has just been arrested for spying for China. He had been working for the CIA. Seemingly, there's this notion in the CIA that if you're Chinese American, then you're likely to spy for Beijing. And this kind of sweeping attack has, I'm afraid, reached the former wife of press baron Rupert Murdoch, who controls Fox News and the Wall Street Journal. On the front page of the Wall Street Journal just a day or so ago was an article suggesting that Wendy Dang Murdoch, the ex-wife of Rupert Murdoch, is possibly an asset for Chinese intelligence. Now, you're talking about a woman uh, who, through her divorce settlement, is part of the 1%. She's very close to Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, the daughter and son-in-law of the U.S. president. And yet, in her ex-husband's newspaper on the front page, she's being accused of being an asset of Chinese intelligence. Now, you can either look at this as a, as a strange kind of revenge that a husband pays on his ex-wife, or you can see this as a larger story of how this mania about China and the, this suspicion that people of Chinese ancestry will be assets for Beijing is really getting out of control. Wow. I do know that we can kind of segue from China to Russia and uh, all the stories related to Russia. <laughs> There's so many. And the corporate media here is still very much obsessed with Russia and what they call Russia Gate. And but at the same time ignoring a lot of the other I don't know, really important stories that are happening. Uh what are some of the stories you think that they're missing? Well, one, I've only seen in Business Week, not in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the L.A. Times, even though I think it's of importance. Business Week carried a story about Truthfeed, which is a website peddling fake news that gets more page views than the Wall Street Journal and the National Review combined. It has organic connections to the Trump team and the Trump campaign particularly to a former spokesperson for the Trump campaign. I'm speaking of Katrina Pearson. Now, this is newsworthy and noteworthy because despite all of the stories about Russian interference, allegedly in the 2016 election, here you have a documented case of this website peddling fake news of a white supremacist and oftentimes anti-Semitic nature mm -hmm. that's hardly received a mention in the mainstream press. I just happened to stumble across this article in Business Week it's a story that needs much more attention and ventilation than it's received to this point. You know, I had a chance to look at Truth Feed, and I was actually really shocked. And it reminded me uh, on this, you know, anniversary of Trump's inauguration, really. It reminded me of the kind of balkanization of the media that we've been talking about on the show. 
People wonder why or how Trump maintains his base of support. You know, how can you, but if, if people are only watching Fox News, Breitbart, you know, reading Breitbart and then Truth Feed, you can see where people on a daily basis can get fed fake news, half-truth news, just all manner of really hate-filled, like you said, racist and including racist and anti-Semitic content. And that is what their, uh, that is what their media diet consists of. It's quite shocking and quite remarkable at the same time. Then the last thing, media related, of course, and, you know, I have to agree with um, a comment I heard earlier. I mean, I've heard it from a number of people and you know, we've had the same discussions here about how this constant, you know, uh, reportage of the Trump reality show is, is taking away from, you know, reporting about, you know, really significant damage that he's doing in terms of the internal workings of government here. But this week, of course, the the crap hole story <laughs> has continued to top the news. And but there's there's more to it than just the word he used and whether he said it and his views on immigration and him once again proving that he's a racist. There's more to it than that. Well, there's much more to it. I mean, it's not only Trump, the individual. It's the fact that certain pundits have suggested that this is red meat for his base. Yes. The fact that he insulted 54 to 55 African nations, Haiti and El Salvador. That's uh, quite shocking, I must say. Secondly, I think that that story is also a reflection of what happens when a domestic discourse goes overseas. What I mean is, as you know, the right wing, and particularly Trump, have been making quite a to-do about this question of so-called political correctness, which is basically a way for them to license more bigotry by suggesting that they're being politically correct. However, once you take that argument beyond the borders of the United States, you run into the problem of insulting 54 to 55 sovereign African nations in the context of a kind of new Cold War between the United States and China. Uh, You, as Cherry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, said on CNN the other day, you run the risk of U.S. personnel overseas being attacked in retaliation against Trump's insults. And I think that's one of the reasons why the story has gotten so much traction. It's because it's an international story with grave implications for the execution of U.S. foreign policy. You know, speaking of that whole issue around immigration, I resistance genealogy uh, created by a journalist, gene, genealogy buff, uh, Jennifer Mendelssohn, and she basically looked into the backgrounds of many people on Trump's team, uh, like Stephen Miller, <laughs> and found that a lot of their rhetoric, really, uh, if they applied it to their own families, they wouldn't be here either. You know, if we use the example of Stephen Miller, she says that he feverishly defended a proposal to cut legal immigration in half and limit it to affluent, skilled English-speaking people. And then she recounted Miller's past. And um, this is this is from her research. His maternal great-grandparents were Wolf and Bessie Glotzer, and they fled Belarus as, quote, dirt-poor immigrants, end quote, arriving at Ellis Island in 1903. They had $8 in their pockets, and Bessie spoke no English. They were eventually joined by several family members, a.k.a. chain migration, which is <laughs> what they're you know, trying to protest against now where people bring in their family. 
and Miller's repulsive bosses have similar stories uncovered by others. One of their rabid supporters, Fox News loudmouth and strident critic of illegals, Tommy Lahren, Mendelssohn found, has even a better one. Her immigrant great-great-grandfather, Constantine Dietrich, was indicted and prosecuted for forging and altering his naturalization papers. In 1917, he was acquitted by an evidently less than pitiless jury and was allowed to stay. <laughs> so it goes on. But the project is um, resistance genealogy, really kind of looking at the hypocrisy. And we, and we know it's there because because as it was revealed later this week that, you know, when you when you start talking about, you know, we want people from Norway, it's not about immigration. It's not about what's being legal or illegal. It's about having more white people here. Well, clearly, I mean, obviously. And speaking yeah. of resistance genealogy, I'm sure you know about the ancestors of Donald Trump from Germany. Some of them were involved in running brothels in what is now Alaska. And that's yeah. how the family's grub stake basically started. That's now led to an alleged billion-dollar fortune. Okay, well, of course, there's... Uh there's so much going on, but we were at least able to cover some bases here. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author, activist, professor at the University of Houston. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. In culture and media, Lydia Curtis attended a preview of that City of Hope exhibit and filed this report. On May 21st, 1968, masses of people set up a tent city on the National Mall and named it Resurrection City as a part of the Poor People's Campaign for Jobs and Freedom. It was the manifestation of an idea announced by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to bring poor people from across the country together to demand from the U.S. government a solution to rampant poverty affecting 25 million people. The Smithsonian is commemorating the 50th anniversary of that protest with an exhibit entitled City of Hope at the National Museum of American History. This week, I asked curator Aaron Bryan to explain the title of the exhibit. There's a quote from Ralph Abernathy where he's talking about creating the City of Hope. Um, he's christening the site of Resurrection City, and, um, and he says, you know, we're basically building the City of Hope, meaning that we shouldn't despair. Martin Luther King is gone, or you're poor, or I know it seems really tough, but we're going to do this, and we all still have hope. We haven't given up hope. We still hold on to our faith. And that's as important to the American democracy as, and, and engaging in the democracy as anything. And so a major message of Resurrection City was we will not give up hope. And as long as you don't give up hope, you're still engaged, you're still, you're still a participant of the society. The residents of Resurrection City demanded a $30 billion anti-poverty program leading to full employment and an economic bill of rights. Led by Ralph Abernathy in the wake of King's assassination, 3,000 people descended on D.C. and stayed for six weeks to bring attention to the wealth disparity and the suffering of the poor. Lonnie G. Bunch III, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, told reporters this week that the City of Hope exhibit is a reminder that Dr. King's legacy extends beyond civil rights. 
While many celebrate King's leadership for the battle for racial justice, his last campaign, the struggle for economic justice, is often undervalued and less understood. When recalling Resurrection City, people often remember the rain and the mud, but not the meaning. They remember the brief duration of 43 days when Resurrection City was populated, but not its long-term impact. And often people think that after Resurrection City, the war on poverty was won. Through pictures and video, the exhibit captures the spirit and diversity of this historic and important mass protest. Bryant says he was shocked at how little is known about Resurrection City, and he seeks to change that with this vivid collection of banners, tents, signs, flyers, and voices representing the continuation of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign. The City of Hope exhibit is open at the National Museum of American History and will have a special celebration this May for the 50th anniversary. This exhibit is occurring as a new National Poor People's Campaign is being launched by the Reverend William Barber of North Carolina. For more information on how to participate in it, go to www.breachrepairers.org. Also, an interactive version of the City of Hope exhibit is online on the website for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. This is Lydia Curtis reporting from the National Mall. Thank you, Lydia. We'll have more about the City of Hope exhibit after the break. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. We'll be right back. Everybody praying, and everybody saying, but when come time to do, everybody's laying, just talking about You know, in 2018, there will be so much attention and discourse, rightly so, about the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. At the National Museum of African American History and Culture, we decided to acknowledge that moment, not by focusing on King's death, by helping the public remember his legacy and the issues, some of which are still unmet, that really, that he challenged America to address. To understand the Poor People's Campaign, it's essential to remember the calamitous year of 1968. 1968 was the year when all the pain, all the violence, all the hatred, all the fragmentation, and all the hope of the 1960s seemed to combust. America was volatile and fragile with great political, racial, and generational chasms over the war in Vietnam, over the long, hot summers of urban unrest, over the murder of Dr. King and later the murder of Robert Kennedy. But out of this pain and uncertainty emerged the Poor People's Campaign, a campaign shaped by both hurt and hope that sought to find a way through a multiracial collaboration 
to alleviate the poverty that defined too many communities. This exhibition allows us to appreciate the planning, the sacrifices, and the commitment to fulfilling Dr. King's dream that was at the heart of the Poor People's Campaign. And it also candidly repositions Dr. Ralph Abernathy as an effective leader of the post-King civil rights movement. While it's clear Resurrection City did not end poverty, it did help focus America's attention on the vast and diverse array of Americans trapped by poverty. By examining the six-week encampment on the National Mall, candidly, it's hard not to see the contemporary resonance of the Poor People's Campaign. After all, the mall has been the site of so many moments where people have demanded a changed America. African Americans have used this bully pulpit of that expansive land from the Lincoln Memorial to the Capitol to demand equality, from Marian Anderson in 1939 to the March on Washington in 1963 to the Poor People's Campaign to the Million Man March. It's become sacred space to ask America to change. The images and the artifacts within this exhibition are reminders that despite the economic growth and prosperity that has shaped this nation since 1968, there are still millions of Americans without access to the American dream of economic opportunity. We hope this exhibition encourages visitors to re-examine Dr. King as somebody who demanded in America where economic opportunity would accompany the demand for equal political and social rights. One of the strengths of the Poor People's Campaign was its ability to bring together people of many different backgrounds, African American, Latino, Native American, white Americans, who shared one common thing. They shared an understanding of the pain of poverty, and they shared a commitment to using that diverse coalition to prod, to push, to demand that America live up to the promise in the Constitution and the Declaration. In essence, like Dr. King, they dreamed of an America that not yet existed, but they were willing to sacrifice so much to make it so. Ultimately, this exhibition posits that average citizens can help America to be made better, can help America to live up to our stated ideals and that the best way to honor the ultimate sacrifice of Dr. King is to cross those boundaries that divide, boundaries of race, gender, ethnicity, to demand a fairer and freer America. Thank you very much for being with us this morning. Uh, I'm going to start with Mark Morial. Um, Mark Morial is not only the distinguished president of the National Urban League, the largest civil rights organization in this country, and one of the oldest civil rights organizations. He's also the former mayor of New Orleans, and he's only 25 years old. It's amazing. Um, but uh, Mark, <laughs> tell us, you know, the role of major civil rights organizations like the Urban League, the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, SCLC, the power behind these days was important, but tell us a little bit, Mark, about the role of those national organizations in galvanizing people for action and, and what that looks like today. Mark. Yeah, thank you very much. And first of all, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. This is what's important, <laughs> reflecting back 50 years. 
the historic civil rights organizations, the historic civil rights organizations, the NAACP, the National Urban League, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, National Council of Negro Women, uh, were united in doing many things in the 1960s. Uh, the March on Washington, uh, as an example. And while more is made of differences, uh, the historical record demonstrates that these organizations work together and in unison, even with some spirited debate about whether the best tactics, and there was a debate, was litigation, or whether the best tactics was uh, direct action and protest, or whether the best uh, actions were later on uh, a more militant uh, and strident approach that was championed by many young people. What is striking to me about 1968 and about this campaign is how meaningful the Economic Bill of Rights that was published by the Poor People's Campaign is today. They published a Bill of Rights. And I'm going to read it because I think this is the heart of why I believe that in many respects what this ought to be about is we now must pick up the baton of the 1968 Poor People's Campaign and run anew. So the first Bill of Rights was meaningful job at a living wage. The second was secure and adequate income for those who cannot find a job or do a job. Access to land for economic uses. Access to capital for poor people and minorities to promote their own businesses. Ability for ordinary people to play a truly significant role in the government. This Poor People's Campaign, which was really an iteration by Martin Luther King to do a number of things. One, to pivot and expand to a focus on economic justice and economic rights in a very determined way. Understanding that the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act were important tools and pillars, but that they were missing dynamics in how people's quality of life could be improved. The second thing that was very determined about this Poor People's Campaign is that it was multicultural, multiracial. There was an intentional effort to meld together, this is 1968, poor whites, Latinos, and African Americans in a concerted, visible effort to push this economic bill of rights. Today, there has to be a renewed effort to help poor white people, poor black people, poor Latinos, working whites, working blacks, and working Latinos, that they have more in common when it comes to economic issues than in division with each other. In today's America, culture and race Culture sometimes is just a cold word for race. Uh, has divided the body politic, which means that something so simple, like raising the minimum wage or pushing the country towards a living wage, can't find the light of day here in the Congress of the United States. But 20 plus states 
have said, forget the Congress, forget the President, we'll do it on our own. So simple, important things cannot get done because politics, the politics of race, the politics of culture gets in the way. I'll stop with this. Uh, two years ago, 2016, we did the 40th anniversary report of the state of black America. Gave us a chance to take an introspective look at really how far we had come. The truth is, is that the country made great progress from 1963 to 1976 and 1978 when it comes to the reduction of poverty and the improvement of living conditions for people at the bottom of the economic ladder. Since 1976, relative economic disparities have not changed much. The distance in income, the distance in home ownership, the stagnation of wages. Since 2000 in this country, the average working American in the bottom 80% has seen about a 10 to 15% pay cut because their wages are keeping up with inflation. That's the here, that's the now. We have an opportunity. I, I will say this, our challenge in 68 is not to make 68 a year of nostalgia, a year where we look back and all we do is reflect and we say what might have been but to use this time to renew this commitment to economic justice and poor people. Mark Marial, thank you very much. Steiner is the founding president and CEO of the Center for Emerging Media. Uh, but before he had gray hair, he was a important activist. His oral history is upstairs um, in the exhibition. And he had a particular role in working with white folks from Appalachia. Bring us back to those times and tell us a little bit about your role and why you're still such an activist today. <laughs> well, uh, I, welcome to have you all here. Um, I'm happy to be part of this exhibit and thank you for asking me to come down today. So, 1968, um, I was 22 and um, had been connected with, not a member of, but connected with a group called the Young Patriots in Chicago. They came out of a thing called the Union for Jobs or Income Now which was a series of organizing projects across the United States then. And the founding mother of that movement was a woman named Peggy Terry. And the great Studs Terkel uh, brought her story to light and interviewed her numerous times. Peggy came from a Ku Klux Klan family. She had been a member of the Klan. Uh, her son, Doug Youngblood, who served uh, six years in prison for murder, for manslaughter, was also a member of the Klan. And he became the founder of the Young Patriots. And um, who were the Young Patriots? Chicago, you know, was a place where people from the South, Alabama and Mississippi, came north to. Whether you were white or black, you came from Mississippi, Alabama, you went to uh, Chicago. And so most of the white folks from the mountains of Tennessee, mountains of Alabama, the mountains of Mississippi, ended up in Chicago, in a neighborhood called Uptown, which is, and Uptown was a poor white ghetto. Then there was a gang in that town, in that neighborhood, called the Goodfellas. Uh, and that gang uh, was a gang, street kids. And they became 
they were organized by Youngblood and Peggy and others, uh, and a guy who was here the other week, who um, was one of the last remaining young patriots in the country, uh, High Thurman, back in those days it was just known as High Thurman, his street name, his twin brother was Low Thurman, High Thurman and Low Thurman, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> everybody had to have a street name. So, um, but at any rate, so they started a free clinic, like as the Panthers did. They were part of the original Rainbow Coalition with the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the Brown Berets uh, in Chicago. And they formed uh, a group that really got the establishment, Mayor Daly, very upset because it was coming together of, of poor communities across racial lines. And just very quickly, give you a sense of what that means and what it meant to be a resurrection city, that way living in a resurrection city. So there was a meeting took place in Chicago where um, a number of Panthers were there. Bobby Lee was one of them, who was one of the, who was actually the person who founded the Rainbow Coalition. It was his idea. Fred Hampton picked it up and said, this is a great idea, but Bobby Lee's the one who started it. Bobby Lee just passed away. And they were in this meeting with folks from the South, white people, in Uptown. And they were talking about how we have to stand together against police brutality and for um, the end the slums and fight these landlords and have decent schools and, and more. And I remember this older white guy in the back of the room stand up. And he said, I'm not going to use the word, but he said, if that's what them ends are doing, I'm marching with them. And Bobby Lee and the other Panthers, their reaction to him using the word and standing up and saying that was to walk over, hug him, because that's why brother were walking together. And after a while, the man learned that that wasn't the word to use. And his conscience was raised. So this whole battle around uh, poor whites and poor blacks in that period was about changing consciousness, was about fighting and struggling together, and it really just changed a lot. So they came down from Chicago to Resurrection City. And one of the things that Mark Morial was pointing out, I just wanted to add two things to that. There were two other, there were a lot of demands were made from the Poor People's Campaign. It's important to remember some of them because they are relevant to 2018. This is 1968, and one of those demands was $35 billion in 1968 dollars to end poverty in America every year. $35 billion they were demanding to end poverty in America. And they also were demanding half a million new houses a year to be built in America until every slum was torn down. In those days, we used the word slum. And that was, and so it, it, until every slum was gone, a half million houses a year have to be built. Those are some of the demands. And those land demands that he talked about, Mark talked about, referred to Appalachia, southern farmers in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, and the Chicano farmers in the southwest United States demanding land for themselves, and land to be given that was stolen. So we had this encampment there. Peggy Terry was there, Youngblood was there, people came out from Chicago. I was already living in D.C. I was at that time working with them back and forth to Chicago, but I was also helping start the thing called Liberation News Service and was working with the Washington Free Press, so I was in a little stuff in D.C. as well. And that encampment actually had the Confederate flag flying in the poor white encampment from uptown. And one of the symbols on the jackets of the uh, young patriots was the Confederate flag. Very different time of perception of what that meant. And they used that as a way to teach other poor white folks that 
what racism was about and what that flag meant, but how it could also be a flag of rebellion for change. So it was really interesting that the way people looked at it then and how that was used at that moment. And so, um, but people got really sick in that camp uh, because they got sick, I guess, when they stopped in Dayton. They say the food was poisoned all the way, and many of them were sick during the whole good, good part of the encampment. But the, the thing about this was that there was a lot of tension inside that camp, and there was also a lot of love inside that camp. There clearly were, as High Thurman told in his story that we did last week here at the museum, at, at, the, at the museum, <laughs> um, that he told the story about how he thought that. Uh, that many of the gang members were paid by the police to disrupt the camp. And there was that tension. You could tell that tension was there because there were gang members who were with the Poor People's Campaign who watched the perimeter and there were gang members who were clearly causing trouble all the time inside the camp. So that tension was there. And there was tension inside the camp between activists who lived in the mud and the huts, as we did, and then people who stayed in the hotel. Um, and I remember we actually marched into the hotel one day while Jesse Jackson and others were eating at the dining room table and we were sitting in the mud eating out of pots and we didn't like that. So <laughs> we had a conversation about what that meant for the future of the campaign. But let me just close with this. Remember what King wanted to do for this. This was his idea. He wanted this to happen. He believed in a multiracial army of the poor. He believed in a black-led movement. And he wanted people to be in D.C. to disrupt Washington, D.C., 24 hours a day, civil disobedience to change the nature of America. This is what he wanted when he died. When he was assassinated, the mantle was picked up. Uh, to me, it was one of the most important moments in our history that we've forgotten, is Resurrection City, and what it meant to be inside that city. And I'll close with this. The last day in that city, those of us who were left were attacked by the police with bulldozers and tear gas and they tore into the camp and tore it down and people fled and people were arrested um, and that was a day I'll never forget because we just I can still feel and taste and think about the tear gas and helping this mother and two children get out of the camp so they wouldn't be hurt by the tear gas so it was a very heavy and intense moment and talk about Bobby Kennedy one of the things that I'll never forget that day was when Bobby Kennedy's body was went past the camp and stopped and everybody moved. Thousands of people came just around that moment when his when his body when the casket stopped and the train stopped and people spontaneously began singing Battle of the Republic as his body passed. That was huge because see at that moment, even though I didn't believe it in my re looking at it now, I realize that Bobby Kennedy was a man who changed dramatically as a human being, as a politician in this country. I didn't understand that then. Then he was just one of those establishment figures that I, you know, read we wanted to disrupt, and I think about that. But in retrospect, I understand who he was, what he meant at that moment, and why so many people were crying and singing at that moment when his body and his casket passed the camp. You just heard journalist and activist Mark Steiner, and before that, Mark Morial of the National Urban League, and Lonnie G. Bunch III, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, speaking this week about the new exhibit, City of Hope, 
at the National Museum of American History. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and our final segment today is from contributor Chantel James, who attended a peace walk in honor of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. She filed this report. Mandate for black people in this time! Mandate for black people in this time! To avenge the suffering of our ancestors! It's to avenge the suffering of our ancestors! It's to earn the respect of future generations! Temperatures barely pushed 20 degrees, but contingents of organizations from all around the city and a supporting crowd of all ages came out in hundreds this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This year's Peace Walk was held in Anacostia and traced a route from Good Hope Road to the Berry Farm Recreation Center. Maurice Cook of the Movement for Racial Justice gave context for the history of this event and some of the rationale behind his group's participation in it this year. Some of the folks who put this together uh, have formed an organization called the MLK Holiday DC uh, Peace Walk and Parade Committee. These are long-time Ward 7, Ward 8 organizers, activists, um, who are part of making the original MLK holiday, you know, promoting that to be a national holiday 35 years ago. So some of the folks who um, are, are part of, of uh, leading this effort uh, were the ones that were young people then and were ones who were, were protesting out in the street, um, you know, petitioning the government to make MLK a, a holiday, a big, uh, national birthday a holiday. So what is the connection between, I guess, remembering King with a walk and some of what y'all's organization has been trying to do? Well, of course, you know, MLK built so many bridges between various communities, bringing the nation together uh, in love and unity, really supporting the most marginalized, uh, the most disenfranchised here in, in our nation, really around, around the world. This is his legacy. Anacostia, obviously a community that has its own struggles, but it's where the people are, the people of Washington, D.C. I'd say kind of the really the most traditional place where D.C.'s heart really is, is here in this community. And some of the lead organizers who've been working very hard to sustain this national holiday and commemoration of Dr. King's work, they've become more and more popular as uh, kind of the, the struggles that we now face in, in our current society. The need for us to, you know, consciously and put real effort into bringing our community together has grown even stronger, um, which I think has bolstered the participation and activities of the various groups who are here partnering with the MLK Holiday DC. So, is this more of sort of a solidarity building and fellowship building and legacy building among activists, or is it also a message to people outside of that community? Well, it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity to come together to celebrate and honor the legacy of Dr. King um, by bringing those who may not have uh, familiarity with this, this neighborhood, uh, this part of the city, um, to kind of onboard and be a bridge, just like Dr. King always did. Um, this, is, this event is a bridge to bringing people um, from various parts of the city and even our, our region to come commemorate uh, the legacy of Dr. King. And people can take it where they want to take it. Um, for the martial racial justice, we promoted local businesses, local organizations that do work here every day for people to be aware that you know, this community needs, needs everyone's support. 
Black Lives Matter DMV had a sizable contingent. Organizer Nakia Green gave us the thrust of the movement's areas of focus this holiday, summed up by signs paraders held that read decriminalize blackness, redefine safety, and organize resistance. Well, so we're trying to reclaim the narrative of Martin Luther King. Um, we think that it's a part of a part of our claiming for liberation is being able to refocus on the fact that you know Black Lives Matter and the Civil Rights Movement are connected, and that's why we have our three components today of organized resistance, um, a rede- redefining slave, uh, redefining safety, um, as well as uh, decriminalizing blackness. Right, so that's we're trying to let folks know that that is some of the work that MLK worked on, and that's what we're going to be doing for the rest Great. of the year. Great. So, how many people are you expecting to come out and join you today? Well, I mean, I think we have about maybe 20, 20 folks. We have a lot more people coming in. I mean, we have like I would say hundreds of people that are engaged with us that will be coming to support. Great. Thanks. Anything else you'd like to say? Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Okay. Thank you. Groups used the Peace Walk and Parade to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and to recommit themselves to his radical mission. There were opportunities for youngsters in the community to be shaped into people who understand the importance of social justice as citizens of a so-called democracy. Give your name, Rafaela. Rafaela, okay, so you all came out to honor the holiday? Yes. And what have you thought of what you've seen so far? Oh, I'm, I'm really greatly impressed. It's nice to see the young people and the old folks out here, you know, paying tribute to a man who really paved the way for a lot of people. Right, right. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, uh, ladies, uh, I was wondering, are you guys excited to be out here today? Yes. Do you know who we're honoring today? Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. So what does Martin Luther King mean to you guys? Freedom. Freedom? Good answers. What are your names? Rihanna. Rihanna. Tyler. Nice to meet you. Not everyone at the Peace Walk felt that King had gone far enough. Anna gave her reasons for coming out, but also told us she couldn't always identify with what she interpreted as King's pacifism. My name is Anna. Anna, okay, and so what brings you out in particular to the Peace Walk today? Okay, because, first of all, I am a black immigrant, black mother of non-white kids. And the police now, they target our kids. They literally target our kids so our kids can get in trouble. And the follow-up with that, a lot of our kids are mentally educated. They know their right. So the police, when they know that they know their right, they get rid of them. So this is my personal business, to do this now as a mom, so it won't happen to nobody else. This don't need to happen to anymore. Fantastic. I'm the organizer to Terrence Fairley movement. This gentleman should never die the way he died. His parents should not be suffering the way they're suffering right now. So just to see that the system don't work for us, it's killing me inside. So I make this my business to be out here and protest for Black Lives Matter. Thank you. Thank you. So are you drawing any connections between Dr. King, what Dr. King did, and the work that Black Lives Matter is continuing today? 
Me, I follow more the Black Panther. Helping my people. I don't know how to do political. I gotta concentrate helping my people. Making sure that my people know that as long as we have each other, they just, we're 99, they're number one. Thank you, I really appreciate it. From Southeast Washington, D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantel. And Voices from the Peace Walk will have the last word for today's show. I want to thank Gerald Horn. Thanks to Chantel James and Lydia Curtis for their reporting. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Give us a good vote on iTunes if you listen that way. We almost have 500 likes on our Facebook page, and I know you can help us get to 500 this week. Our Facebook page is the one with the picket sign that says, On the Ground in Green Lettering. Not that other Facebook page. That's not us. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be speaking and signing books on Saturday, January 27th, 10.30 a.m. for Appeals Historical Cultural Literacy Series at the Thurgood Marshall Center, 1816 12th Street, in Northwest D.C. More information is at appealinc.org. In the meantime, keep raising your voice. Talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.